And when by his grace I shall look on his face, that will be glory, be glory for me. And we say amen to that. And uh, it's good to remember that this is by grace. As uh, I'm speaking today, it's easy when we read First John to uh, forget about grace because John is talking a lot about practical righteousness and sin. And uh, these things are important as we consider the tests of life in a believer. But we don't want to forget that our salvation is by grace, not by works. Let me start with uh, this slide and a question for you. Have you ever been asked a question by your doctor that made you uncomfortable? Uh, a few uh, months ago, maybe, maybe it's been actually a year or more, I noticed my wife started serving her children milk with every meal, <laughs> a cup of milk. And uh, you know, that, that can be a little bit challenging. You know, you have little kids and you want them to finish their food. And uh, adding that cup of milk is an additional challenge every meal. You have to finish <laughs> drinking your milk. So, you know, I challenge my wife, why do we have to give them milk with every meal? And uh, my wife's answer to me is, well, you know, when she goes to the doctor, with, to the pediatrician with her children, the doctor starts asking questions. <laughs> you know, what, what is it that the children are eating? What is it that you're giving the children to eat? She asked the children, what is your favorite food? <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, that can be, you know, an uncomfortable experience for my wife as uh, she's being effectively judged by the doctor on what it is that our children are eating. Uh, but I'm, I'm thinking there of uh, other experiences. If you've ever had uh, the uh, uh, experience of being at the hospital and uh, receiving hospital food, uh, often you may notice that uh, the nurse is keeping track of what it is you're eating and what it is you're not eating and may ask you about that and that could make you feel a little bit uncomfortable too. But they're doing it for a good reason. The reason that uh, they're asking these questions is um, God gave us an appetite for food. And uh, it's a, an indication, or if you would, a, a meter or a thermometer of your health by what it is that you're eating, what it is that you want to eat, what is it that you have an appetite for. If you have children or you've experienced yourself, one of the first things that goes away when you're sick is your appetite. And so it's a sign that there's a problem when uh, you're, not, you're not eating all your food. Now, we're going to want to, to think about that as uh, part of the test that John has for us here. So we've looked at the number of tests so far. And the test today will be about your appetite for spiritual things, or rather for righteousness. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. We'll call that your spiritual appetite. How hungry are you for righteousness? How thirsty are you for righteousness? And we're talking here really about practical righteousness in your life. How much do you want righteousness to be part of your daily life? That's, if you would, your, your spiritual thermometer. It, it helps shows 
really what your spiritual condition is. Um, and because Jesus said this, that it is those who hunger and thirst for righteousness that will be filled. If you don't have a thirst for righteousness or a hunger for righteousness, Jesus is saying you're not going to be filled with righteousness. You're not going to uh, one day really be filled with the righteousness that God wants you to have, which is really critical for your relationship with God. Without righteousness, we will not see the Lord. And it is those who hunger and thirst for righteousness that will be filled. Okay, with that, let's turn to 1 John. And uh, we're, we're going to go ahead and, and kind of cut the passage we're reading in half just to help us focus on, uh, on the thoughts that John has here for us. So First John, we'll start at chapter 2 and verse 28. He says, And now, little children, abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, Now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So what we have here in my outline I call spiritual appetizers. And I don't know why people have appetizers. Usually when I go to eat and, you know, a restaurant, you know, offers appetizers, you know, I'm really already looking forward to that first course. So I don't really need a main course, I should say. I don't really need an appetizer. But uh, what we have here is a list of things that give a true child of God an interest in personal righteousness. So if you're a child of God, these things will appeal to you. You'll say, oh, yes. I want to have personal righteousness. I want to have righteousness because of these things. So the first one he has here is um, in in verse 28, And now little children abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. All right, I like that second that responds the second time a little bit better. Uh, When we think about Jesus coming again, it causes us to think about what it is that we're presently doing. Uh, We we have options in our lives, and as believers, we have plenty of choices of what to do with our time. And I find that for myself, it's really helpful when I'm trying to decide what it is, that whether I should do something or not, is I think, If Jesus is going to come back while I'm doing this thing that I want to do, you know, how would that make me feel? (laughs) That's always a good test, because if I'm not doing what Jesus wants me to do, I'm not going to feel so good when he comes, right? That's what he says. We don't want to be ashamed before him at his coming. All right, a good appetizer for personal righteousness. 
Alright, the second one is this. It says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Now, God did this wonderful thing when he created us. He gave us a genetic makeup. I have a genetic makeup in me. And uh, when I have a child, a biological child, I pass that genetic makeup to him. And you can usually uh, see that when you look at a child. You can see the resemblance, right? If you look at my children, hopefully you'll see some resemblance between them and me. And it's a testimony that we really are that person's child. Well, the same thing is true about God. When, when we are saved, the Bible says we're born again, we receive a nature that is like God. We have that uh, description of that for us in Second Peter uh, chapter 1. I'll read uh, verses 2 through 4. He says, uh, Peter is writing to the saints, he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, that is, God gave us what we need in, all, in order to live the Christian life and to be godly, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that through these you may be partaker of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through us. God wants us to have a divine nature. In fact, God imparted to us the divine nature when he saved us. He gave us a new nature that is just like his. And it's because of that that it enables, first of all, a, a, child, a child of God to look like God. But it also gives us a desire for that personal righteousness. God loves righteousness. And if you're a child of God, you received some of that genetic makeup, if you would, when you were born again, you received the nature of God that loves righteousness. One of the wonderful things about uh, kids, I have another slide here, is that they have this natural desire to look like their uh, parents. Sometimes we will want to dress up a little bit as a family because uh, there's a photo up, there's an opportunity or a picture, and we want to look the best in our picture. And uh, Joy doesn't naturally like putting on fancy clothes, but uh, if, he, if, if I wear something nice, and Mommy can say, well, if you put this, you will look just like Daddy, then okay, I'll do that. <laughs> that that's what it takes to look like. But now, we don't typically put a tie on him. This was a special uh, photo op. But there is this desire. Now, if we are children of God, we have a desire to be like God. I haven't seen it so much uh, lately, but when I was going to college, it was uh, somewhat popular to have uh, maybe a bracelet or a necklace or something on it with the words WWJD. Anybody knows what it stands for? Yeah, what would Jesus do? And the idea is you look at this bracelet or whatever it is you have, and it reminds you that um, as you're looking at these different options of what you can do, choices that you can make, you can always ask, well, what would Jesus do in this situation? And that's a great encouragement to us. When I think about, oh, this is what Jesus will do, even if I may not have wanted to do it naturally, the very fact that I know this is what Jesus would do gives me that extra desire to do it. Right? Like a, a spiritual appetizer, a desire for righteous living, thinking about him, wanting to be like him.
Okay, the next one we have here is the love of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. One of the wonderful things that happen when you're saved is God takes you and he doesn't just say, okay, you know, I'll forgive your sins and, you know, I'll let you come to heaven and you can hang out with the angels and, you know, life will be good. God actually makes us a member of his family. We're not just going to be in heaven. We're going to be in the inner circle of heaven. We're going to be part of this family of God. And uh, John wants us to consider what manner of love it is that God has shown us in making us part of his family. So to try to bring bring it to earth, I was uh, thinking of a situation of, uh, let's say there's a homeless boy in a a third world country. I know, Howard, you've probably seen uh, children on the street in the Philippines, children, people that have children that have nothing. They have nothing. And uh, let's imagine one day uh, Bill Gates happened to be walking these streets on uh, one of his uh, tours or business trips, and he sees this homeless boy, and he has pity on him. And he says, I, I want to help this boy. And he takes this boy, and he puts him in the limo with him, and uh, uh, brings him to his personal jet, and uh, flies him to uh, his home in Seattle, which I understand costs about $150 million to build, and uh, has about uh, 66,000 square feet of living space inside. And uh, Bill Gates tells this boy, from now on, you know, you are my son. And this here is your home. And I'm going to provide for you the best education that money can afford. And uh, when you finally graduate from college, if you want to graduate from college, I'll give you the best job that Microsoft has to offer. And uh, one day when I die, uh, I'll leave enough to you out of my $60 billion personal fortune to make sure that you'd never have to work another day of your life. You'll be completely taken care of. Pretty good, huh? Do you think this boy is going to want to obey his father? To be the best boy this world has ever seen? Yes, because of the love, the great love that was shown to him. The same way because God has shown us such a love of making us his children. And if you're a believer, you, you, you start grasping that, you know, how much that love is, what it is that God has given you in Christ. You want to be a good son. Spiritual appetizer. The fourth and last one we have in this passage is in uh, verses 2 and 3. It says, Beloved, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And this is talking here of what we often refer to as the Christian hope, or really our future expectation. Now, it says here that uh, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. And uh, there's probably two schools of thoughts on what that verse means by it. It could mean that we don't really know what will happen to us in the future, what we shall be in the future. It could mean that uh, when you look at me, you, don't really, you can't really tell what I'm going to be like. It hasn't been revealed. I am a child of God, of the King of Heaven. But you might be looking at me and wondering, is that really true? <laughs> because this guy really doesn't look the part, right? I don't, you know, I, I don't have this kind of, of uh, appearance that you would expect a true child of heaven 
is going to have. Um, and I prefer that interpretation because the Bible actually tells us quite a bit about what we will be in the future. We may not be spending as much time as we should thinking about it, but it's revealed to us, for example, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, and as we have borne the image of the man, man of dust, the man of dust is a man that was made of dust, who is Adam. Adam, he was made, made of dust. We should also bear the image of the heavenly man. The heavenly man is the Lord Jesus. Now I say, brethren, that flesh and blood, I'm sorry, I, I, I started in the wrong place. Let me back up to verse 47. Is that okay, Jake? I apologize. Jake is very gracious toward me as uh, he tries to follow me here. The, the first man was of the earth, made of dust. That's Adam. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. Right now, I have the same kind of body that Adam had. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. Meaning, sons of heaven really should be looking like the Lord Jesus. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. So this is telling us what we will look like in the future. Right now, sorry, you're looking at, you know, a man of dust. In the future, when you see me, you will see a man of heaven. I'm not going to look like I look now. I'm happy about that. Now, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit in corruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. And what uh, Paul is pointing out, this is, uh, by the way, 1 Corinthians 15, written by Paul. What he's talking about is that I cannot enter heaven in my present physical form. Right? Flesh and blood just don't cut it in heaven. I have to be transformed in order to be able to be in heaven. I need to have the same kind of body that the Lord Jesus had when he rose from the dead. Okay, I will have a supernatural body. Jesus was able to walk through doors. I can't with this body. Okay, I, I, I need to have that kind of a body, a different body than the one I have now. Now, trying to appreciate this a little bit more, uh, let's turn, if you would, or the verses will be up there, to Romans 8. And uh, Paul is thinking about the same subject here, that is the hope of the future Christian believer's expectation. And he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now he's comparing the future with the present. And uh, our lives at the present might be fairly comfortable. But uh, when Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us, 
Paul knows a little bit about suffering. Right? He was beaten up for preaching the gospel. Uh, we're told that he was, uh, he was scourged. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was in prison. He suffered for the gospel's sake. And yet he said, compare to this future expectation that we have, I'm not even going to compare my present suffering. It is so wonderful what we have coming to us. And he continues in explaining that in verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And what that is saying is really the whole world is messed up right now. When Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, the whole world became subjected to futility. This world hasn't reached the potential that God has for it. And that potential is really waiting this revelation of the sons of God. When we are finally in this form that God wants us to have, that's when this world will really be what it ought to be. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we are saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So, <clears throat> it says here the whole creation is groaning right now. And not just them, but we also. Why? Because we want this future body that the Lord is talking about. Right now, we have a body that is corrupted. Well, physically, you know, I'm not as good looking or whatever strong or healthy or, or in other ways the way I want to be. But also morally, this very body carries in it sinful desires. And so we're groaning. We want to have this practical righteousness. And right now, all we really have is the first fruits of the Spirit, but we're looking forward for that day when we will be changed and we will be fully like the Lord Jesus. And what John says, Paul says and John says, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. That is a spiritual appetite. When we think about the fact that one day we will be just like the Lord Jesus, <clears throat> we'll have this new body. It's an encouragement for us to resist temptations now and overcome trials now because we, we have our eyes set on our hope. Our final encouragement for, for personal righteousness. So now Paul has given us, sorry, John has given us all this encouragement. And if you're a believer, hopefully you were stimulated at least a little bit by all these things to desire to live a life that is honoring to God. Now John is turning and he's looking at the other side about uh, uh, people that don't have a spiritual appetite. They don't have a desire for practical righteousness and they're practicing sin. And he, he will show them how that is really inconsistent with being a child of God. Remember, this is part of the test that John is giving us to help us see whether we're genuinely saved, whether we're really Christians. So, First John 3, continuing in verse 4, 
Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. When I first expressed some interest in becoming a Christian, I uh, started going to this church. We were in a different building. Uh, <coughs> Rick Bellis, who was an elder at that time, offered to meet with me and uh, talk to me about the things of God. And I was open to that. I felt, well, yes, I, I do want to know about God and maybe how to be right with God. So Rick came to my uh, room, my dorm room, or actually my fraternity house room, and uh, started talking with me and showed me uh, prophecies in the Old Testament that pointed to Jesus being the Messiah. And uh, I became convinced as a result that Jesus really is the Messiah. And uh, Rick came back a couple weeks later, and I told him, Rick, you know, I, I became a Christian. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And, uh, you know, Rick said, well, that's wonderful, and he kept on talking to me. And he kept using this word, sin. And uh, I, I was uncomfortable by him saying that word. And uh, so at some point I told him, you know, Rick, you know, you keep saying this word sin, I'm uncomfortable <laughs> with you using that word. And um, so if you are uncomfortable with the word sin, this is a very uncomfortable passage. I, I counted in these five verses the word sin appearing ten times. So, understanding, understandably, this is, this is a difficult passage for us to deal with. And I think this of doctors, when they come and they ask us uncomfortable questions, you know, it could be uncomfortable for the doctors, too, <laughs> to be asking us these questions. But they do so because, well, they need to do their job. And they, they question the information they're trying to get from you is important for them to be able to assess your health and to be able to help you. And in the same way, as uncomfortable as, as this passage is, um, it's, it's something that is needed for people to know what the spiritual health is. And um, that's why we're going to struggle through it. <laughs> because it's so crucial, so important. Now, one thing that will help us a little bit through this passage, I read it in the New King James Version. I imagine there's other versions you guys have out there. And it may be a little bit different. We look at, at verses like verse 9, for example. It says, whoever has been born of God does not sin. And we're saying, whoa. <laughs> Even as believers, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, 
we sin, right? And if you don't, come tell me afterwards. <laughs> but this is part of my experience of, as a Christian. I commit sin. And uh, in fact, First John says it earlier on. If you remember in chapter 1, he says, whoever uh, says that he has no sin deceives himself. Right? So sin is, is a reality of a believer's life. Well, what may help us is a lesson in Greek. I am not a Greek scholar. But my understanding uh, from reading what other people said is that the word uh, in the Greek, the present tense in the Greek means continual action. So when we read this, whoever sins, we're thinking whoever committed an act of sin. What it means in the Greek is whoever is practicing sin or is continuing in sin. Is, that's what it means here. Whoever is, has been born of God does not continue in sin or practicing in sin. And even if you're you know, not a Greek scholar, and you're wondering about my sources, we can kind of see it as a parallel. If you look at verse 7, for example, it says, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous. So we're talking about a practice, a way of life. And what John is saying here is if you are practicing sin, if sin is a way of life for you, then you are not a child of God. Now, we... uh, you know, don't like being told that we're not children of God. And usually, we have uh, one reason or another why we think that we are children of God. And it may be something like, well, you know, my parents were Christians, right? My parents are Christians, and therefore I am a Christian. Or we might say, well, you know, I go to church. Doesn't that make me a Christian? Or, we might say, well, I prayed a prayer. I prayed a prayer to receive Jesus into my heart. Doesn't that make me a Christian? Or we may go beyond it and we might say, I was baptized. Doesn't that make me a Christian? Well, all these things may be very good to have. It may be very good to have a Christian parent that can point you in the right direction. It may be very good to go to church where you hear the word of God and there's Christians uh, you can interact with. Uh, It may be uh, good to pray a prayer and God can save you when you pray a prayer. The Bible says, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So it's perfectly possible to be saved if you pray a prayer. It's good to be baptized. The Bible commands us to be baptized if we confess, if we profess to be believers in the Lord Jesus. But none of these things is presented as a test to show that we are believers. We've been going through 1 John. We've looked at a number of tests already. We have a few more tests. And I'm looking into the future. Nowhere in 1 John is the test presented. And they ask you the question, well, have you ever prayed to receive the Lord Jesus into your life? That is never a basis for salvation. It's never a test that shows whether you're saved or not. On the other hand, whether you are practicing righteousness or not, whether sin is a way of life for you, are presented as tests to show if you're a child of God or not. It says here, little children, let no one deceive you, and there is a deception in this world. Satan would love to have you think that you are a child of God when you may not be a child of God. Because it stops your searching. It doesn't want you to be looking 
for the salvation that God has for you, it's much better for him for you to have a false confidence that you're saved than for you to realize that you need salvation. And so, John is here trying to wake us up for the deception of having, believing we're Christians or saved uh, based on, on, on some false reason that really isn't uh, a basis for salvation. Okay. So, this is a little bit like the you know, a shotgun approach here. If, you've, if, you, if you are practicing sin in your life and uh, you think you're a child of God, it'll feel like you know, somebody uh, shooting, you know, or pulling the trigger on a shotgun from about 10 feet away. <laughs> you know, it's not, uh, you know, it'll, it'll riddle you full of holes, if you would. But we'll try to go through this one by one and just see how powerful the argument is that you cannot be a child of God while living a life of sin, practicing sin, sin being a way of life for you. Okay, verse 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So the first uh, thing, let's define sin as what it is. Sin is lawlessness, which means rebellion against God. Often, we will do something wrong, but we'll do something wrong to just another human being. And uh, that makes us not realize how serious our sin, and the fact our sin was actually against God. When I, when I hurt somebody else, it's not just that person I'm hurting, it's God himself. And to uh, illustrate that or prove that, we can look at uh, Psalm 51, and we'll do what we don't typically do. We'll read the introduction to the psalm. This was a little bit difficult for me as I was asking uh, Jake to put it on, because it's not even verse 1 of the psalm, but it is part of the original writing of the scriptures. It says, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him, after he had gone to Bathsheba. So this is David's own introduction to the psalm. And what he is saying is, I wrote this psalm after Nathan the prophet came and talked to me about what I've done with Bathsheba. And most people know what happened. David basically stole somebody else's wife and then had the guy murdered. Right? Pretty serious. And uh, this is what David says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. What David realized is it wasn't just Bathsheba he sinned against. It wasn't just Uriah he sinned against. He sinned against the God of heaven. I have a, you know, a household with four children and sometime one of my children will hurt one of my other children. And uh, what they realize then, it's not just this other child and the wrong they've done to the other child that they have to deal with, it's the wrong that they have done for me because I have some laws in my house. <laughs> I expect certain behaviors from my children and when they, they hurt one another, they didn't just hurt one, they broke my law that I have in my house. And the same thing is true. When we're hurting another person, 
then it's not just that person we hurt. We've sinned against the God of heaven. Now, lest we think that uh, sins, when we talk about sin, we only talk about serious sins, like the one of David against Bathsheba and uh, Uriah, uh, Jesus brings it closer to home for us in Matthew chapter 5. Really, both these sins, murder and adultery. He says this about, first about murder in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. Jesus is saying anger is also sin. And in fact, anger in some ways is as bad as the sin of murder. If you think about it, murder begins in your heart. It's when you're angry with someone that you will eventually murder them. But God sees it in the stage of anger and he says this is just as bad. And it's not just a sin against that person, it's a sin against the God of heaven. Then Jesus says in verse 27, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, where does adultery start? It starts in the heart. If I look at a woman with lust in my heart, that's the drive to adultery. And God sees it at the stage of lust, and he says that's just as bad. So when we talk about sin, we're talking about stuff we're dealing with every day. Not something extraordinary uh, like murder or adultery. Anger, lust, hate are sins against God. Second, as he goes through this uh, list, the next bullet is... um, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins and in him... Is no sin. Those of you who are studying the Here's the Difference class have learned that uh, salvation comes in different tenses. And uh, it has a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense. We usually think about the past and maybe the future, and we omit the present. And the, the past tense of being saved is being saved from the penalty for our sins, or being saved from hell, which is wonderful, right? God could stop there, save me from hell, and I'll be happy. But it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that God came to save us from hell, right? It says uh, this, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Right? Now, being saved from hell is the past tense of being saved from our sin. We're being saved from the penalty for sin. We sometimes think about the future tense, and that's to be completely saved from the presence of sin. That's what we were talking about earlier as the Christian hope. One day I'll be in heaven, and it will be perfect. But God is such a great God, Jesus is such a great Savior, that when it says he came to save us from our sins, it also talks about the present tense. He came to save me, from the power of sin in my life today. So if my life is that of continual sinning, there is no evidence of the salvation that Christ came to bring into my life. So it's an inconsistency to be practicing sin and to say that Jesus saved me. Okay, the next bullet 
is uh, what it is that Jesus came to save us to. What Jesus came. So the last one I, in my notes I had is what Jesus came to save us from. He came to save us from our sin. What did he come to save us to? It says, whoever abides in him does not sin. Again, often we think, well, eternal life, that's being with Jesus in heaven and it will be wonderful. But Jesus said that eternal life is to know God. He saved us to have fellowship with God in the here and now. And if we are practicing sin, it said, whoever abides in him does not sin. If we're practicing sin, we cannot be enjoying the fellowship that he wanted to have with us. He saved us to have our relationship with himself, fellowship with himself. If I'm walking in sin, I'm not enjoying it, which shows I haven't really been saved to the purpose that Jesus had for me. The Bible says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is he who trusts in him. Believers have tasted it. They have come into fellowship with Christ. And when we commit sin, which we do as believers, we lose that fellowship with him. And all of a sudden, we're feeling miserable. We're missing that joy of being with him. And it's that that drives us to our knees and confess our sins. And it says, then God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that our fellowship with him is restored. As believers, when we sin... We, we sense this loss of fellowship with him, and that drives us back to him. When a person continues in sin, it shows that he doesn't feel a need for fellowship with God, which is evidence, really, that they're not believers. You can't practice sin and be comfortable and happy as a Christian. But the next bullet is uh, there is no evidence that we've really come to know God, or to meet God. Uh, there's this song that uh, I'm afraid of singing, but I'm going to try it. Unforgettable, that's what you are. That's as far as I'm going to go, so you'll feel, don't have to worry anymore. But th- that's a song that was written to express the fact that when we meet a special person, it has a real impact on our life. It changes us forever. That's what the person who wrote this song is trying to say. Well, meeting God should be like that. Meeting God should change us forever. When we have a baptism, we let people share their testimony. And one of the things I've learned to listen to when people share their testimony at the baptism is this evidence for change. My life now is different from the way my life was before. If there's no change in your life... There's no evidence that you really met God because meeting God should change your life. He is that unforgettable. It will change you forever. The next bullet, and uh, maybe the most painful one here, is in verse 8. It says, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And what John is saying here is that when we, are, when we sin, we are putting ourselves on the devil's side. Because sin originally started with the devil. He is the first one who sinned against God. In pride, he lifted up his hand 
against heaven, and he said, you will not rule over me. I am going to rule over myself. And in fact, I'll try to get everybody else to come and worship me. That was Satan's idea. And every time we sin, we're basically following in Satan's footsteps. And we show ourselves as belonging to Satan. Now, it wasn't just John that said this. It was Jesus who said this, too. In uh, John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus says to people, You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. So we are living a life of sin. We're showing that we're allied with the devil and not with God. Finally, the last bullet in this uh, shotgun discharge that uh, John has is in verse 9. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. Now, this is what we talked about before. When God saves a person, he puts in them a new nature. And uh, this nature here is described as a seed. God puts in, in, a, in your heart a desire to do what is right. Now, it is just a seed, right? It's not a full plant. And we still sin or fall into sin occasionally as believers. But even that seed in us, this desire to do the will of God, will keep us from living continually in sin. I might sin, but I will hate the sin and I'll desire to do what is right, and so I'll get up and I'll change. I may sin again, but again, this new nature that God has given me will turn me the other way. And if you don't, if you can live comfortably in sin and continue to sin, it shows you do not have this seed. There is no nature that God has put into you. Now, you know, all of this can be... Uh, painful, or it could cause you to rejoice. It depends where you, you fall on this side of the test. If the doctor comes and he asks you how you're eating, how your appetite is, and you find I have an appetite for righteousness, I really do enjoy the things of God. I stumble in sin, but I hate it, and I get up, and I want to do the things of God. Then the doctor, you know, is, will pat you on your shoulder and say, great, you know, this is, uh, I'm happy to hear it, you know, come back in one year. And I'll, I'll check into you. And that's one of the purposes John wrote this epistle, was really to give confidence to the true believers that they are saved, as opposed to the Gnostics that were not. Now what if, as you were sitting there and, and listening to what I've been saying, you're instead convicting and saying, well, well Noad, what, what you're saying, what John is saying, what the Lord is saying in his word, is true about me. I don't see this seed of righteousness in me. I don't see a desire to do the things that are right. I do the things that are wrong all the time. What about me? <laughs> Why did you call me here? Why did you, you know, say all these things that are just hurtful uh, to me? And uh, again, think of the doctor and why it is that the doctor is saying these things. He doesn't say it because he wants to hurt me, hurt you. He says it because he wants to help you. He wants to see if there's a need in your life. He wants you to see if there's a need in your life. And then he'll be able to hopefully do what it takes to help you. Now, in the case of human doctors, sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes the doctor will find that you have some incurable disease 
And at the end, he'll say, I'm really sorry to share this news with you, but you only have three months to live. A human doctor may say that, but there is a doctor that can help you in your condition. If you are looking at your life and you're saying, yes, I am a sinner, I need to be saved, I need righteousness, and I do not have it, let me introduce you to the great physician. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 5. Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I, and he's saying that he is the physician, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you are a sinner and you recognize that you are a sinner and you need to be saved from your sins, Jesus is saying, that is why I have come, to save you from your sins. And the Bible tells this to us, but as many as received him, as many as received the great physician, the Lord Jesus, as the personal doctor, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. If you don't know what that means, and you want to know, you want to experience the healing that Jesus came to give you, I'm happy to talk to you. I'll be sitting here in the front. Howard, uh, the other elders are also here. They would be happy to talk to you. So don't live without finding out what it is that Jesus can do for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that uh, sometimes your word is very searching. In fact, you say that your word is like a double-edged sword that uh, is able to divide even the bone and the marrow and uh, show us our sin. Lord, we pray if there's somebody here who doesn't know you, that your word will search them out and show them their need for you. And we pray that they will come to the great physician and receive his healing. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.